Welcome to Law and More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm Bose Cohen and Collins that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. In this episode, our senior partner Colin Cohen meets former Court of Final Appeals judge Michael Hartman. In their wide-ranging discussion, Michael recalls his days as a solicitor in his native Rhodesia during its transition to Zimbabwe, talks about his career in the judiciary, and reveals his hopes for the future of Hong Kong. Stay tuned to hear all this and more. Welcome to Laura Moore, and thank you so much for joining us. It's always good to see you. I arrived in Hong Kong in 1981, a little bit before you. And I know you're retired nowadays, but what are you involved in at the moment? I'm semi-retired, I think, is the best way of putting it. In fact, I was busier in my first four or five years of retirement than I think I was when I was sitting permanently as a judge. I've done uh, two commissions of inquiry. I chair a couple of statutory boards, and I was also, until recently, chairman of the body that examines solicitors who want to get higher rights of audience. And in addition to that, because of my background in family law, I've I've done a lot of private family law matters, mediation, private adjudication, and that sort of matter. So yeah, kept pretty busy. Thank you. That's great, because you are the man to go to in family mediations and all other mediations. There's always your name who comes up first when we try to get to mediations. Well, anyway, let's go back a little bit and to your background. I know it's very interesting because in Australia you were born, then you went to the UK, then you ended up in Rhodesia. Give us a little sort of potted history, what got you to Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, and how you became a lawyer, because I know you write a little bit as well. Yeah. The getting to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, is a complex story, but can be told in about 20 seconds, which is that my mother was Australian. After the war, we settled in Australia. My father was English. He didn't like Australia. So we went to England. But my mother, being Australian, didn't like England. So they had to split the middle, which they literally did, and went down to friends in Rhodesia as it then was. And that's where my parents settled. I finished my education in England. And after that, I came to Rhodesia. And how did you get into law? My mother. I, <laughs> I wanted to be a journalist to start. And I was a journalist for about two years. That was pretty exciting, actually. It included, for example, getting recruited as a Congo mercenary when they first started the recruitment exercise. And I was sent in to cover as a dissolute young Englishman to get recruited. But it became quite clear to me fairly quickly that you have to be very good to be a top-rate journalist and to earn a reasonable living at it over your lifetime. My mother always wanted me, a good Jewish mother, always wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor. Or an accountant like mine. Or an accountant, yeah. So uh, I did law at the local university. Great. And then I always remember appearing before you where you were very proud to tell, and we did a case, a jury trial, and you told you you remember your time as a solicitor and how these sort of stresses of being a solicitor. So you went straight as a solicitor in private practice. I was a solicitor, yes, but quite quickly, I think the fact that I enjoyed court work more was well understood by everybody, and I became our sort of in-house counsel. The bigger matters obviously went to the barristers, but I did the smaller matters. 
And then when the professions fused so that barristers and solicitors had a single qualification in Rhodesia or Zimbabwe, as it then was, then I became effectively in-house counsel. Yeah. And I read very recently Clive Grossman's uh, memoirs, and he said he was in private practice. Did he ever deliver any briefs to you? Or, or, or did you deliver briefs to him? him? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Clive and I were very good friends. And in fact, in a way, it was Clive who brought me here. I got into a lot of trouble in Zimbabwe representing the wrong clients in a case where they were charged with treason for blowing up fighter aircraft. I won't go into all the details of that, but it became a, a very big, difficult case. I got arrested myself as a agent for foreign power. And uh, there were a lot of stresses there. I'm very happy to say that at the end, by the way, all of the people I represented were acquitted. But I was told in no uncertain terms that if I stayed in Zimbabwe, uh, my future was going to be limited in the sense that the government saw me as becoming a center for contra cases and wanted me to leave. The lure of Hong Kong in 1983. And the lure of Hong Kong, which brings me back to Clive Grossman, because he was the one. We went around there on a Sunday to have tea. And he said that another Rhodesian who's still in Hong Kong, a chap called Frank Stock, he's just been through on a holiday. And he recommends Hong Kong. They're looking for people. So about four or five months later, my family and I arrived in Hong Kong. Yeah, that's very interesting because I arrived in 1981. And at that time, I got recruited from London because they were really short of lawyers. I mean, I was probably under my net in the role 900 lawyers at that stage, and there was a great shortage, and the same with the Department of Justice. So you entered the Department of Justice. Was it extradition and mutual legal assistance at the beginning? I came into the Department of Justice as a pretty much a standard rifleman, and I did what I was told to do. But quite quickly, I moved on to some other areas. Initially, I did a lot of advice to the police, and then I was put in charge of our essentially our international section, dealing with extradition work and international liaison work, often with American agencies like the Drug Enforcement Agency. I think. Yeah, because I remember that I acted for one of the longest ever extradition battles in London, Lorraine Osman. Oh, yes, I, yes. And I, and I think I remember some correspondence uh, at that stage, because I think you got involved in yeah. a little bit on the peripheral side as well. I then got involved, which I really did enjoy a lot, with, with 1997 coming up and the return of Hong Kong to the sovereignty of the mainland, I was given the task, along with two others, including somebody from Whitehall, of negotiating our new extradition treaties. Yes. And um... so that, that was actually very good. I enjoyed that. We were in San Francisco and then Sydney, Australia, and then Malaysia. I think Wayne Walsh was involved in some of that uh, a little bit was, later on. Yeah, a little, a little bit, bit later, later on, on, after I joined the judiciary, yeah. Yeah, as well. So, I mean... There you are in the Department of Justice, rising up, and all of a sudden you become a district court judge. I mean, what made that move? I mean, it's interesting because Clive in his book says, well, he had a choice. He could have gone applied, but he didn't. He then got a job ahead of commercial crimes. Then he went into private practice, not into a district court judge. What made you go to the district court? To be honest, I had never actually thought of being a judge. And it sounds like a corny story, but it's true. The form arrived on my desk one day and, and I looked at it and I thought, well, you know what? This isn't a bad choice. Spoke to my wife about it and we decided, uh, yep, I'd put my application in. I never thought I'd get it. And I was actually on holiday back in Zimbabwe and another 
person who was a Zimbabwean, we had quite a few from Zimbabwe at that stage, bumped into me in the street and said, I've just heard from Hong Kong, you've been made a judge. So that's how I found out about it. Yeah, and so in the, obviously, district court, is you were doing many criminal cases. Or did you do any civil? In the I district? started off criminal, and then they asked if I would go and sit in the family court, yeah, which was not a favoured place to go. But I had done a fair amount of family law back in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe days. And so I said, yes, I would. And that actually was an opportune moment for me because family matters had increased tremendously in the Hong Kong jurisdiction. Used to be a jurisdiction 20 years before I was there where they just had about two or three matters on a Saturday morning. Now we were getting thousands of matters each year and our systems were very out of date. And so I was essentially, over a period of time, put in charge of chairing various working groups to modernize and to try and speed up and to make fairer and cheaper our systems. And then started rising up the chain, the ranks. You became a high court judge. You even did a criminal trial, which quite a few criminal trials you were doing, as well as doing matrimonial and doing judicial reviews. Very, very mixed. Either you're a criminal judge or a civil judge, and you had that balance of doing both. So that, that was unusual. Again, that was very nice. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the uh, the criminal trials, the jury trials very much. I enjoyed the uh, matrimonial. And in a way, I enjoyed the civil, but I hadn't done so much civil for a while. So I looked on that with a degree of caution, but quickly got into it. And then they moved me almost permanently into the constitutional law section. All the judicial reviews. All the judicial reviews, which I, I headed the judicial review section there. At that stage, if I recollect, there were a fair number, but not like the number of JRs, which have been in the last few years. Oh, no. It actually, at one stage, started to get out of hand. And it was quite common at the opening of the new year, the parade and the formalities we have here for that, for the Chief Justice to say that judicial review was not a panacea. It was not a cure for everything. Yeah. And then you got promoted. You went into the Court of Appeal. Into the Court of Appeal, yeah. yeah. I remember hearing everyone sort of enjoyed being before you. And then when you retired, you got appointed as a non-permanent judge of the Court of Final Appeal. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. if you look at your track judges who got their way, not very many of you. It's a few, but not many. No, no. I, I, I was lucky in many respects. I enjoyed the job. I enjoyed the work. And it just fell into place for me. I, I stayed in the Court of Final Appeal for about four or five years, but I enjoyed very much after I retired doing a lot of various work, especially sitting on statutory tribunals such as our stock market disciplinary tribunals. And the problem there is that the ultimate Court of Appeal for that tribunal was the Court of Final Appeal. So I really had to make my mind up do I stay in the Court of Final Appeal, reduce the amount of work I'm doing in the other varied tribunals or not? And I decided after discussing it with the Chief Justice that I would retire from the Court of Final Appeal. Yeah. And I'm still chairing some of our stock market tribunals yeah. today. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you the sort of the big, big elephant in the room here. I mean, you've been a staunch defender of the quality of the judiciary the standards and process. You said it's world-class. I do agree with you. 2021, there are tensions around, there are issues, and everyone's talking about the importance of the rule of law. How good is our judiciary? 
as far as I'm concerned, having spent time, for example, in the army many years ago, this may sound as if it's not an appropriate comparison, but I think it is. You see elite troops, those that are well-trained, and they won't buckle no matter what. I like to put our judiciary that way. We may be a small jurisdiction, but the people who join our judiciary often come from top universities overseas, our best universities here. They have long training in a strong tradition of common law. And I think no matter what, some may be a little faster than others. Some may uh, have a bad temper. Some may be better armed in that regard. But there's not one of them who doesn't have uh, a strong sense of integrity and a strong sense of doing what is right for Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, I think both of us agree that judicial independence is the cornerstone of the rule of law. Some people, however, are trying to say, no, that's under threat. I don't think it is. But what's your view? No, I I don't think it is. I, I think, obviously, because we've had some major changes here, there will be those who perhaps will look or think twice before they seek to join the judiciary. That's natural when you've got any political turmoil in the background. But that said and done, I've spoken to a lot of judges who are still sitting. Their sense of independence, their sense of integrity remains just as strong. And I'm very happy to see, for example, that the body which appoints and promotes judges is still appointing and promoting entirely on merit and not on any other basis. Yes. I mean, there's one area where I'd like to get your comments and views, is that the most busiest people in the judiciary right now, if you have a number of cases and the numerous prosecutions, are the magistrates. They're under incredible pressure, I believe. And in the past, I, I just wonder whether they're given enough resources. I mean, the incident recently whereby bail applications wasn't great. It, the world perception of having cases going into the middle of the night and people fainting in the dock, it just wasn't great. That was because of resources. From your view, you know about resources, you've seen it, you've been through it all. Is that an area for a type of reform? Are we putting enough resources into the lower courts? I don't think so. I have never thought that we have been resourced as well as we should be. I think, for example, that judicial training once you're appointed, should be an ongoing thing for everybody, literally from the chief justice down, because law keeps changing and the demands of law change. So this is not a criticism of the judiciary itself, but like any large organization, it requires proper funding. The irony in a way with that case, as you mentioned with the magistrate, is that the magistrate is doing his or her utmost to try and make sure that the cases are heard and dealt with without delay, even if it means sitting into the night. That's highly admirable. But of course, it can give the view, as it does, that that shouldn't be necessary. There should be other judges available, other magistrates available. Yeah, and there could be proper training. I mean, I've been in practice now 40 plus years, 80 when I arrived, and I have to do my 15 hours every year, and I do it diligently. I look for interesting courses. I do get exemptions because I sit on committees which have a legal flavor, but I, I'm somewhat astounded that some judges, there's no training compared to what you get in the UK. There's conferences where you have to attend and do your hours, and it doesn't seem to be that here. I, just, I don't know why. There, there has been a movement towards increasing judicial training, and, and I can't say that there's none. All I can say is that during my period of time, 
the only judicial training I got was given by myself to myself in doing cases. And I think there's a limited amount of judicial training now. But to me, a top-rate judiciary requires to be kept top-rate by being abreast of the changes yes, in I mean, the law. Yeah, I think that's so important. I mean, some of my friends who become judges mentioned to me, they're just thrown in the deep end. And Selma Reyes, who was a judge and then retired as an academic, he could give some lectures and help on writing of judgments. And for example, I became an arbitrator and I had to go to a course. And part of my course was actually writing arbitration awards. Yes. Yeah. And it was helpful to him. So you become a better arbitrator as well. That's sort of shifting a little bit there. Are you in favor of a trial by three judges with no jury or one judge with no jury? That's a difficult a one. Question. It's a very interesting question. Yeah. My answer is I have a great deal of faith in jury trials. I really do. But I think that with the best regard in the world, a panel of laypersons, and we're lucky in Hong Kong, we have very, very astute juries, often highly educated juries. But I think there are certain areas, for example, complex commercial crime matters, where perhaps we could look at making sure that those kind of cases proceed quickly, far more cheaply than they are at the moment. And to do that, they need to be dealt with perhaps by an expert panel, say three judges, or perhaps I sit, for example, on two statutory boards with the stock market. So I sit in the middle as the judge, and I have on either side of me persons who are chosen from a panel, each of them, that panel consisting of accountants, stockbrokers, and people of that kind. So anybody coming before those tribunals knows there's a, a legal body in the middle and two persons who are members of the profession on either side who are there to make factual findings. If that was mooted in England and it got rejected, there are some tribunals like that. I mean, when you did the Commission of Inquiry in the MTR, you had an expert engineer. I presume he was quite useful. A very, uh, very, eminent, a very yes, eminent guy. Yeah. I, I had to disclose I was acting for one person on, on that yeah. in any event. But did you enjoy that? that? A very long, dry inquiry under scrutiny. I mean, it lasted. You had to do two of them. I mean, did, did, that, did that get the juices running? Yes, it did. I mean, there's a lot of cases where you look at it and you think to yourself initially before you know anything about, oh dear, this is going to be a long, heavy trawl for me. But once you get into all sorts of cases where there are issues to be resolved, where questions of negligence or guilt are to be resolved, where people's lives are at stake. And here, for example, we had with the MTR one, we had an entire section of railway running 20 or more kilometers with all sorts of complex engineering issues. But beneath that were issues of people not doing the work the way they should do it, people not writing reports the way they should. So we were getting down to basic issues of negligence, laziness, oversight, and things like that. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting inquiry. Yeah. Now, away from the law, many of our listeners may not know that you are a great author. Plays, eight books, adventure thrillers, and even one became a film, I understand. Tell us about that yes. side of your career, and why aren't you now writing new books? Well, it all started, actually, when I left boarding school in England and went out to Rhodesia, as it then was, 
And I discovered that they had a really good social life at the local amateur theater. And that's where I met my wife, in fact. And they set up a playwriting contest. And I wrote a play, won the contest. The play was put on. I enjoyed that. Wrote a couple more and had one of those put on and had one of them accepted for the Mermaid Theatre in London, in fact. Right, yes. It never actually got on in the end result, but the mere fact that I got a letter saying, yes, we'd like to do it was great. And then I overstepped myself. I wrote a very wordy sort of John Osborne type look back in anger play. And a journalist who was critting it said this was far too wordy and he should try and put some more action into things. And I thought to myself, action, yeah, I like that. I was stuck in the army in Rhodesia. And so I wrote a novel and sent it to London. It got accepted. It was called Game for Vultures. So are you doing any writing right now? No. My writing stopped the minute I joined the judiciary because I was spending too much time writing judgments. Very difficult to jump from complex issue, for example, on contract and then put that down and then go into the next room and start writing some issue about incest and divorce and stuff in some thriller. Very interesting. You and your wife, Melanie, I know you very well. You're long-term residents of Hong Kong. You've been here almost as long as I have, nearly coming up to the 40 years. What's next for you both? What are you going to do moving forward? This is our home now, Excellent. and it's become our home. We've, we've got a property here. We like being here. I'm involved in various uh, matters here. I don't want to chase after my children. I think that'll be a mistake. Let them chase and after you. Exactly. There's a spare bedroom if they want it, and they know they can come back once COVID's over. So yeah, Hong Kong, from what was initially maybe three years, has now become our permanent home. Same as me as well. I, I, I'm yeah. here forever and ever. And finally, your thoughts on the future for Hong Kong. I mean, that's, that's a whole separate podcast on its own, but sum up. Summing it up, well, I wouldn't be staying here if I didn't think that Hong Kong had a future. We've been through some really difficult times. Many places do. I don't think that the Hong Kong that comes out of all of this is going to be the Hong Kong that began all of this. It will be changed in a number of ways. Somebody said to me the other day that instead of being a European city attached to China, this will perhaps be a Chinese city with very strong European cultural attachments and dynamics. And I think that's right. But it doesn't make it any less appealing. And in my view, I think it's simply too strong to fade away. I entirely agree with that. I can think of no better place for living to be here. And I think that when things develop, we're going through some, there are some tensions, obviously, and people want their say. But overall, I think the place works. It does, absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I think you've really highlighted some matters. So thank you so much and best of luck in whatever you do next. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Law & More, brought to you by Bose, Colwyn & Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal opinion, news and updates, please visit BoseCohenCollins.com or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon on our next episode.